power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech Podcast feed. From days of long ago, from uncharted regions of the universe, comes a legend. The Legend of Sovereign Tech, podcast of the universe. A mighty tech show, loved by anarchists, feared by authoritarians. As Sovereign Tech's legend grew, peace settled across the galaxy. On planet Earth, a union of egoists was formed. Together with the open source, retro gaming, and liberty-loving communities, they maintain peace throughout the universe. Until a new horrible menace threatened the galaxy. Sovereign Tech was needed once more. This is the podcast of super host Dr. Brian Sovereign. Specially trained and sent out into the galaxy to bring back Sovereign Tech, podcast of the universe. Woo! As Keith would say, it's time for the big guy. That's right. It is the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Sabzu, the rated R radio star, Dr. Brian, smarter than your S, Sovereign, here for another Sovereign Tech, episode 491. And as I said last week, Man, it is good to be back, baby. <laughs> it's good. It feels good. It feels right. This is how it is done in podcasting, folks. Was it <laughs> get a little Star Wars in there? This is podcasting. <laughs> oh man, we've got a lot to get into in this episode. Uh, really appreciate a lot of the uh, comments, feedback uh, from episode four ninety of sovereign tech and if you're wondering about how is this episode 490 and how is this episode 491 well if you're a sovereign tech patron at patreon.com slash sovereign tech you'd know because we talked about it on our patreon exclusive wednesday q a's which uh, also include being in the patreon exclusive discord channel so let's have no more shilly shally or dilly dally and let's get into the foreplay with what's going on, the little stories happening in the tech world or the news in general at times. Um, And, you know, last week we opened up talking quite a bit about Apple. I mean, we hit everybody and we're going to get, we're going to hit everybody here again. (laughs) Don't, don't, don't you fret. All right. We'll, we'll get to Amazon. We'll get to Google. Uh, But why don't we go ahead and open up with a little more, a little more Apple talk, uh, as it were. And one of the, uh, uh, scandals of the past week and scandal might be a strong term, but I'm, I'm going to say a scandal, uh, of the past week was the launch of the iPhone 14 and the iPhone 14 pro. And, oh, that dynamic Island. Like I said last week, my nipples are so hard for this dumb ass little bubble at the top of a smartphone that for some reason is considered a feature and the most life changing thing since the wheel, I guess, at least that's the way it's promoted. I don't know. Oh, I got to have that iPhone 14. Got to have the dynamic. I got to have it. Got to have it. There's people out there. They talk like that. 
go on Twitter. Not that I think that that reflects reality, but for some people who have no fucking lives, I guess it does. Anyway, (laughs) speaking of Twitter, uh, people went to Twitter seemingly in droves. And one of the biggest subjects on the day that people are over the past couple days when they had gotten their iPhone 14s, a large complaint came down to uh, the fact that the iPhone 14 does not have a SIM card slot. It comes with an eSIM. Now, what's an eSIM? Okay, so an eSIM is actually not a new technology. Uh, also, Android phones have had them for a very long time. Um, I mean, this is this is actually pretty common stuff. And an eSIM is effectively an adaptable built-in SIM card that's already in your device. Okay, so you don't have to put anything in. Now, it's adaptable, like I said. That means that whatever carrier you're you're using you know, cell phone carrier, you know, that you're using Verizon, T-Mobile, whatever. In general, you should be able to use a phone loaded with an eSIM on any of those. Now that's not entirely true because Verizon often requires you to have very specific, um, you know, uh, uh, bands, you know, very specific, uh, antenna, uh, or radios, I should say to, you know, use their 5g, right? Like MM wave and so on. Um, but for the most part, with an eSIM, you're supposed to be able to use it anywhere. However, people found out that uh, <laughs> those claims, you know, might look good on paper, but in reality, perhaps not so much. And so I, I want to talk about this a little bit, though. Okay. Do I think eSIMs, because this, this question actually came to me, and I'm not going to get into it in a Patreon-only Wednesday Q&A. I want to get to it right here and just kind of open up talking about this, because this, it's going to be a bit of a running theme throughout this episode, is that the narrative that you're getting online, which this is frankly the running theme of Sovereign Tech's existence, the narrative that you're getting online, on both sides, whatever that happens to be, is not the truth. The problem here with what happened with the iPhone 14. And I don't have to put a link in the show notes. You can just type in iPhone 14 eSIM on any social media network or any search engine. And you're going to find exactly what I'm talking about instantaneously. And, and the, and for the, I mean, I want to say it, like, I think for a lot of like, this is very real. Um, I even saw, you know, other great uh, tech journalists and tech commentators. And I mean that like, like snubs and some others where, you know, even she was coming out and saying, uh, yeah, look, you know, if we hear you, if you're dealing with your family, like, you know, going, what the hell am I doing? Where, where do I put my SIM card? How does this work? This isn't working. I'm having to deal with customer service. There's the problem. What I just said, dealing with customer service. That's, that's the issue. Okay. Um, the eSIM technology, it does work the way that it's said you know, the, or the way that it's designed to work. Okay. Um, the problem is that, you know, a lot of people are having to like switch over their phones. Um, and with eSIM, because the carriers aren't really ready for this yet, and they're not, and you take your pick of, except for maybe like Google Fi, but I'll talk about my experience with that as well. You know, as we, we kind of, we get into this a little bit more, the carriers are the ones that aren't ready for this. And they don't exactly know what to do, you know, with, with an eSIM right away. And people are ending up having hours long waits and getting, you know, basically guffaws from customer service representatives at, at the telcos, 
because, you know, they're just like, wait, what the fuck is this problem? And of course, it's all kind of happening at the same time because the iPhone 14, you know, ended up in the mail for everybody that pre-ordered, you know, basically at the same time. Um, and it just, it created a real mess. The pr but again, let's make this super clear. The issue is not really eSIMs. The issue is the telcos. Now there's a, just in the past, and, and let's be clear here, folks, smartphones, not so much cell phones, but smartphones have only been around for essentially 15 years, right? The iPhone comes out in 2007. That was basically what we would call the first modern smartphone, not counting anything by Blackberry or whatever. Um, but they've only been around for 15 years within that 15 years of time. And speaking as somebody who is, you know, who has written the book on security with Android smartphones, particularly. Okay. But within that time, we've seen this where, for example, in fact, we're, this is going to be part of the story of the week. Um, trying to get the telcos in the U S to evolve SMS messaging, right. And to get them to adopt RCS. We're going to talk about RCS more later. I'm not saying that, that RCS is any kind of, uh, uh, you know, silver bullet or anything, but it's just one example of where in that case, Google basically had to force RCS on, on Android smartphones with Android messages, which is the default SMS client. Um, and, and just, just, you know, basically ran over the telcos, which is basically what I, what Apple's doing with the iPhone 14. They are forcing the very slow smart, uh, you know, uh, telco industry to go forward to, to, you know, to move into the future a bit with eSIM. Okay. Because now it's not an option. Now they can't rest on their laurels. So everybody complaining that Apple fucked things up with the eSIM and the iPhone 14, you know, un unless somebody's going to show me an actual technical issue, which I have yet to hear of or see, um, that is not true. Look, there's plenty to fucking complain about with Apple and we will, but you know, don't, don't, this is one case where really this is not Apple's fault. This is where Silicon Valley has once again, kind of forced more legacy systems to move forward. Now that said, I don't really want that to sound like I'm patting Silicon Valley on the back. I don't want you to think that I'm giving Apple any kind of credit here. Okay. I'm just speaking the reality of the problem. That's all I'm doing here. Um, do I like eSIM technology? No, actually I don't. I think it's a problem. I think SIM cards in general are actually a problem. And in fact, they're one of the core problems that shows that really just about any, any smart device that you put a SIM card into eSIM or not, uh, you know, there, there's inherent issues with this now. Okay. So what are the inherent issues? So the inherent, and, and we've talked about these for many years on sovereign tech that SIM cards there, there can actually be exploits built into them in the manufacturing process. And we know that that has happened. Like we have the absolute evidence and it didn't take this tech journalist to, you know, to, to, to break that news. There were plenty others who did. So, SIM cards can be a problem, you know, in that sense. And could eSIM resolve the problem of there being exploits put in by say nation state actors or other malicious actors, you know, into SIM cards where that SIM card, which 
operates under the baseband firmware, which is really wide open and a massive security exploit on any smartphone in and of itself or any like really arm based device with cellular uh, radios in them, uh, you know, that that could be a problem, you know, could eSIM resolve that because you're actually relying on Apple to build a secure SIM card and just jam it into your device. Um, yeah, yeah, honestly, like that's, that's entirely possible. Uh, again, Google in their pixel line also have eSIM. Uh, you know, eSIMs in their devices. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about that more in a minute with the pixel line. Another way that this is advantageous, um, and this is something, so a, a very simple security thing to do with a smartphone. Look, I hate, hate, hate smartphone cases, hate them because pretty much all of them are just cheap shit. I mean, they're, they're, they're so cheap and yet your smartphone could cost shy of a thousand dollars. And then you're wrapping it up in, in a $12 piece of TPU or something like, oh, it, it, it just, it, it kills not, you know, I, I'm a function over form kind of guy, but really when sometimes some of these devices are for lack of a better phrase, industrial art, even though I wish that didn't even exist, but you know, the world we're in, okay, at least it might as well be pretty if you're going to spy on me. Um, but you know, smartphone cases kill that shit. Here's the thing. Putting smartphone cases on, I think is actually a security measure, not so much in protecting your device from drops and falls, you know, uh, but more protecting them, protecting the, like the SIM card slot from getting accessed so easily, you know, with just a pinprick. And then, you know, a malicious actor could put in, could swap out the, you know, the SIM card or whatever. Usually a smartphone would address that, right. Saying, Hey, there's a new SIM card in here and, and, you know, and would alert you to that, but there are genuine concerns or, you know, even bottom line, you have a port that, that you have closed off with a case, which I think is a great thing. And if you have cases where it's even just a little bit harder to open up, you know, the USB C port or whatever on the bottom of it, like these are genuine security measures against malicious actors. All right. You know, this is cybersecurity stuff really. And, and, and I mean, it's such a simple thing, but you know, injection attacks of a type can happen this way. Uh, I mean, it's attractive, right? Cause you don't need to do remote code execution at all. You know, it's just, you're, you're doing a hardware trick. So, um, you know, an eSIM would also resolve that, right? While all of that could be considered true, I would actually rather roll the dice with a SIM card, mainly because one of the best security things you could do is get a little community together. And there are groups all around the world that do this hackers and other types. You have a little group, a little community together and you constantly just switch out SIM cards. Okay. I mean, just, just like constantly. So that way you're confusing what the telcos or, you know, whatever, uh, uh, corporatist organization is tracking you. And you're just, you're confusing the data and they don't know who to identify the varying smartphone, you know, the varying cell phone smartphone with. Okay. Uh, so I would rather have that capability than have eSIM an eSIM built in. Okay. Because that offers a ton more security than anything that an eSIM itself could offer. That said, we also run into the issue of like, I don't mind. I, so let, let me be clear on this. I don't mind there being an eSIM and uh, and, and a, like a normal SIM card slot. In fact, so with my pixel six, 
Um, one of the things, and not every telco offers this, but Google Fi does, you know, just, just from a, a speed uh, perspective. So if you have an eSIM and you have a physical SIM card and you put them both in, uh, on Android, you can actually tell, and as long as the telco allows for it, you can have, uh, the telco access both SIM cards and you actually get a faster data rate that way. Um, and you know, more precise, well, varying things, um, you know, that, that are relevant to the SIM card. So it's an advantageous thing to have. And I like that switching to a single eSIM, you actually lose some of those advantages. Um, so again, and, and now I'm speaking from a very conventional sense. And again, my smartphone is something that is, you know, largely work related. So it's needed for work. So I don't exactly have an option because at this stage of my life, I still need a day job. And since I do, you know, it's gotta be at its best. Okay. And this gives me, and I, I mean, I genuinely see the difference, uh, having two SIM cards like that. Now, speaking of two SIM cards, uh, this is another issue. If you are traveling abroad, um, getting your eSIM set up with, say you, you know, going, you're going from the colonies to Britain. Okay. When you go to Britain, you might, especially if you just use something like mint or, you know, one of the, you know, I don't know, like an MVNO of some type, uh, that, that gives you a great deal in the United States, partly because it doesn't have any overseas, you know, uh, um, uh, data, you know, and, and that's not part of their plans. So when you go to Britain, you're going to get a SIM card and, and it's, it's inexpensive. I mean, it's like 15 bucks and you get, you know, like enough to go for a month. Like you'll, you'll get like 10 gig of data. And in many ways, that's, that's all you need. Right. Even if you can't make phone calls or whatever. Um, and, and I want to address this quick. Like if you're concerned of like swapping SIM cards, you know, with a little group so that you're not so easily want, you know, individually being tracked, um, you know, like, well, then how am I going to get text messages? How am I going to get phone calls? How many, cause it's, cause the SIM card is going to have the phone number travel with it. Well, that's the importance of using a messaging app that allows for calling that allows for messaging, you know, that is not phone number based. We're going to get into that conversation during story of the week. So this will actually play in, uh, you know, really, really well with that, but you should ultimately be doing that anyway. Um, you know, using like a, a third party messenger that kind of rises above it has, you know, it's platform agnostic. Okay. So, um, where were we with that? Right. So you're going overseas and, you know, like setting up an eSIM in these, I mean, maybe if you went into a shop, they would walk you through the process where you go to buy like one of these cards, but usually you're not even going into a cell phone store. You're just going into like a, you know, a convenience store in Europe and just getting a quick SIM card and, and it's nothing and it's instantaneous and it works great. Like there's a genuine advantage to having just, you know, a SIM card, which is effectively a piece of hardware, albeit cardboard, you know, having it or plastic, having a SIM card and just popping that, you know, popping that thing in and away you go, you know, 15 bucks and you're done. Uh, you're going to lose that with an eSIM. Um, and it's hard for me not to think that there isn't some kind of, uh, uh, corporatist thinking in that no longer being able to switch SIM cards is forcing you, you know, into like the identifier that is the eSIM. So I am not a fan of eSIM. Uh, technology, like 
really. I, I mean, I can appreciate the advantages I get by having both, you know, eSIM and uh, having, you know, and, and having still a physical SIM card slot. But no, I, I'd read, I'd much rather, I mean, the only argument that makes it like worthwhile is to say that, well, this is going to be more secure than the SIM cards you get, which are potentially not very secure, which is true. But then I don't trust Apple any more than I trust SIM card companies. I don't trust Google any more than I trust SIM card companies. The best thing that I could trust is, yeah, is, is just fucking with the data by constantly switching out SIM cards, you know, with a group of people. And then, you know, it's just sending up a ton of uh, noise to block the signal of my identity. So I, I don't see this as a good thing, but I just want to be abundantly clear. Uh, the problem here is not Apple. The problem is the telcos are wildly behind the times. So moving on, uh, speaking with another company that, that frankly seems to be very much behind uh, the times, uh, that being Intel. <laughs> I, I can't believe this. Um, link is in the show notes if you want to learn more, but this is just, you know, so it was 19, I want to say it was like 1993 when Intel, you know, finally stepped out from underneath the 386 and 486 SX and DX nomenclature, um, that, you know, was, was really dominating, you know, from like the 286 up, you know, in the late eighties into the early nineties. And they finally ended up you know, talking about their next gen processor, that being the Pentium, you know, and, and it cannot be overstated just how game changing and especially for games, <laughs> just how game changing, uh, the Pentium processor was when that finally was unleashed, you know, the, it didn't go with the 586 nomenclature. They called it the Pentium. This is going to change everything. And, you know, in many ways it very much did like the desktop PC got fucking serious when the Pentium finally came out. Not to say that I, I mean, I don't fondly think back on my Pentium, you know, a uh, uh, PC. I do fondly think back on my 386 and 486, but not so much my Pentium, you know, my first Pentium. Um, of course, that would be succeeded by the Pentium 2, the Pentium 3, and then of course the legendary Pentium 4, which would be the first processor to, uh, you know, really get its ass above three gigahertz. Um, and would actually end up getting it, <laughs> getting wiped the floor with by AMD. Um, so the Pentium name has been around for a very long time. Also, the Celeron name has been around for a almost as long as the name Pentium. Uh, in Intel's infinite lack of wisdom, they have decided to drop those names. And they're just going to call it, instead of Intel Pentium, instead of, you know, Celeron, they're just going to call it Intel processor. That's it. <laughs> They're just going to say, so what does it have in there? Does it have a Pentium? Does it have a Celeron? No, it has an Intel processor. Now I can't help but think that what Intel's trying to do here, they're, they're playing some mind games. Okay. They are wanting to associate the term, you know, the company name Intel with processors in general with, you know, computer processors. Uh, it's a clever trick. It's, it's a, but I really like that. That's a marketing ploy, like all the way. <laughs> that, that's the only thing I could think of. Like, I, I mean, not that AMD does any better, right? Like AMD, they've also recently dramatically changed their naming system for their processors. And it's confusing as fuck. Like I, I have no goddamn idea, 
you know, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm a hardware guy, you know, like I'm, I'm historically, I've very much been into, uh, you know, computer hardware and really paying attention to, you know, clock speeds and numbers, the whole thing. And AMD just has me like throwing up papers. Like, what the hell are you guys? I, I don't even, you know, it's, it's like walking into a store and, and, and seeing like lactose free milk. It's like, wait, what the fuck is in that carton? You know, <laughs> and you, you don't know. Um, and that's how it feels like with, with AMD. But now Intel is just frankly making things worse and trying to engage in clever marketing that honestly, I think fucks things up. But at the same time, it kind of doesn't matter because generally when I'm talking to somebody else, even very tech savvy people about, oh, you know, what, what processor do you have in there? The two things that they talk, the two numbers they talk about the most are the generation number, as in like this year in 2022, the latest, of course, from, from Intel is 12th gen. And then is it, you know, an I3, an I5, an I7, or now, of course, we have I9s, you know, or is it an I9? Um, and that's all that people really pay attention to. I don't think anybody even really cares about Pentium or Celeron. Uh, so it's in, in some ways, this doesn't really matter. Like, and, and I don't feel like it's mattered for a very long time. Um, I just don't see them simplifying the situation. And again, it really all just feels like kind of nasty marketing, uh, because quite frankly, Intel's processors suck and AMD. The sad part for me here is that AMD has a golden opportunity to go ahead and have an excuse for rebranding, which again, they, they did anyway, but to do a rebranding that makes an ass ton of sense, you know, and, and could get people well, I don't know. They're not going to, they're not going to convert people with simple processor names. Okay. Um, but AMD ha has a chance, you know, to call out some stupidity on, on Intel and they're probably not going to take it. And if anything, like I said, they're going in the wrong direction because they've overcomplicated, you know, their, their naming structure. Anyway, um, the people that would actually care about that sort of thing, I suppose they don't mind the complexity because they're actually going to really pay attention to this shit. Um, but it's just a very, it's a very odd time. Um, but I mean, like, it could, and what I'm saying is like, if I was AMD, the marketing I would engage in. Okay. And look, I have, you know, I've been an ad exec. I'm in PR. I know how this works. Uh, what I would do is I, I'd be doing this, this whole campaign that says effectively, like, you don't know what you're getting when you buy an Intel PC, like, because they're dropping again, they're dropping the Pentium gold, uh, uh, naming structure, which, you know, you, you would not want to buy one of those, right? That's like something that's in the Microsoft, uh, surface go, you know, it's very low end stuff. It's effectively like a, a re-engineered, uh, uh, you know, five, six, seven year old smartphone processor. Um, you know, yeah, I, I would just, I would be saying you have no idea what's in that box when you buy Intel now, because they've dropped their names. You don't know what's a premium processor and you don't know, you know, what's a, uh, what's, what's a shitty one, you know, or what's a low end processor that's meant to just run fanless. Uh, but they're not, they're not going to do that. And I mean, at the end of the day, are AMD and Intel, I mean, AMD's doing hand over fist as far as, you know, quarterly numbers. So it's not like they're really hurting, but at the end of the day, is the whole world going to arm anyway? Yeah, it really feels that way. Uh, so, you know, maybe it, it just doesn't matter at all anyway, because it's like, you know, it's like the Allosaurus and the T-Rex just attacking each other. And you're just wondering who's going to get in enough cuts first.
anyway, um, just to round it out, speaking of, of PCs that probably would have had an Intel processor in it. And I would have guessed the 12th gen, uh, but we do have news and this is going out to the fans of Chrome OS, which, Hey, you're using the most, well, next to open BSD, you're using more or less the most secure operating system on the planet. So I'm not saying private, I said secure. So good for you. Um, but you're not going to be getting, uh, another pixel book that was originally very far along in plans as I understand it to come out in 2023. So now there is still going to be that pixel tablet, pixel branded tablet that, um, that Google showed off during the May IO, uh, in, in 2022. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, a lot of people have come out and this is once again, where the narrative online is just fucking nuts. And the reality is as always somewhere in between. Um, a lot of people are thinking, Whoa, is this like Google giving up on Chrome OS? Uh, no. Now, while consumer usage of Chromebooks of Chrome OS in general, uh, has, you know, gone down really precipitously over the past couple of years, that's just consumer usage. That's not enterprise or education or even government. Okay. That in, in those, uh, categories, like it's skyrocketing in, in, in growth, you know, like it's not, it's not going down in consumer spaces. It's going down. Um, does this mean like there'll never be another pixel book? Does this mean that Google is giving up on Chrome OS? No, I, I don't think it, it means any of that at all. Uh, something that, that these companies are want to do, you know, especially a company like Google, who's so deep in software, in this case, Chrome OS and even Android, uh, or like Apple, which granted, you know, they have entire tyrannical control and, and actually I think it works out well for Apple, but, or it does. I mean, you, you can just, if you want to look at it by profitability or just by security, like it really works well for them. Um, you know, like companies like to have when they're, when they're so ingrained in their software and they're so in charge of the operating system, especially companies will do this. Like Microsoft does it with the surface line where they want to show their other hardware partners. Here's what you can do with our operating system. If you just put the money into it. You know, so they make a super premium device and, you know, you look at the pixel books, which what have there been like five overall in the past decade? I mean, not, not necessarily even with the pixel nomenclature, but like Google branded Chrome OS devices, there actually haven't been that many. Um, but they've always been what, you know, in the industry we call reference devices. Okay. And there's not a lot of profitability to be made in reference devices. I mean, the car industry does something very similar, um, you know, where they show prototypes of what's possible, you know, and all this, and, and usually it doesn't even get to the consumers. Um, this is a case where it did get to consumers, but clearly they weren't looking to make a lot of money on it. Now, Sundar Pichai came out, uh, in the past week and said, Hey, yeah, we're, we're really paring down on what Google does. Uh, you know, and so this Pixelbook line, you know, basically getting eliminated, uh, is, would seem to be a response to that. Um, I don't think this is a bad thing for a couple of reasons. One is if you're really into Chrome OS, which again, I don't blame you. Okay. If you're really, you know, yeah. Is your privacy out the door? Of course it is. But then what, you know, unless you're using Linux or something like, tell me, tell me what privacy you have anyway. Or if you're using older versions of windows, which Satan bless you. 
you know, like if, you, if you're somebody who's, yeah, oh yeah, I rock Windows 7 or I'm still rocking Windows XP or something like that, you are doing it right, my man. And I mean that. Uh, you know, or again, or if you're using Linux or BSD or something along those lines. Um, otherwise, you know, any modern operating system, 100%, you are tossing your privacy out the door just as you are if you use Chrome OS. So this argument that, oh, but all your data is going to Google and what? Using Windows 11, you think all your data isn't going to fucking Microsoft? Are you kidding? We know it is. They admit it. Oh, anyway, <laughs> we're, we're going to back off on software tech in general. We're going to back off from talking a lot of consumer tech, but I just want to get like these, these, these episodes, these first few episodes as we're coming back here. Like I, I, I want to just kind of give a, like a, st- address the state of things in 2022 as it were. Anyway, I don't blame people for using Chromebooks and I don't blame you for wanting to have a device sold and manufactured or manufactured and sold by the company that makes, that develops the operating system itself, right? Why do people, why does, why does the golden stallion even recommend buying a pixel phone? Because it gets the latest security updates and it gets, you know, the latest, uh, OS updates even for a very long period of time. But more importantly, it gets them very quickly. Usually it gets them very quickly and quicker than any other manufacturer. Because again, those security updates are just the number one thing to really be concerned about when you're buying a modern piece of, uh, you know, of consumer technology. So with the Pixelbook gone, I mean, like, are they ditching Chrome OS? Are they finally going over to Fuchsia? You know, <laughs> all this. No, I, I don't think that's that's what's going on at all here. Um, I think ultimately what's happening is every company is paying for supply chain issues or, you know, is, is being punished uh, with supply chain issues, you know, coming out of the pandemic, uh, you know, and it's taken this amount of time you know, where years later, I mean, and and you can see this across all industries where everybody's really paring down and shit's going to get ugly. Uh, at the same time, like I actually like that Google is not trying to do so goddamn much because they never really go all in on most of the products, be it software or hardware, um, you know, that they put out there minus maybe the pixel phones, the pixel phones are like the one or, or, and before it, the Nexus phones are the one thing where they really, really put the effort in. That's why I'm still kind of confident saying that, but like the only things you can ever count on from, from Google are basically Google docs, you know, like drive Gmail and pixel devices. Like that's the only, and, and of course search, but like, those are the only things you can count on from Google. I wouldn't trust anything else that they do because they'll pull the plug on it or they'll rebrand it. Like, look at what happened with, uh, you know, meet and hangouts or do, or I'm sorry, meet and duo, right? Like duos gone. Uh, and we're going to get into this more. This is going to bleed in nicely to our story of the week, you know, in the conversation that we need to have there. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is ultimately like Google realized they can't afford to do this. Also, they don't need to do this anymore because you have HP and Lenovo and others making premium Chrome OS devices. And that's enough, you know, for people who want that great experience, they can get it there. I mean, I, I have a, an Asus uh, Chromebook that has an 11th gen Intel processor in it. And that's going to get updates until 2030, you know? So <laughs> like now, I mean, we could talk about the bullshit around, uh, you know, cutoff of security updates 
for, um, you know, for Chromebooks. And there is some bullshit to be had there, but I mean, premium devices are getting made by other manufacturers. There is no need for Google to be involved in that. On the other hand, is there an importance for Google to directly make, um, you know, their, their own hardware, uh, with smartphones? Oh yeah. Because that's where their bread and butter is ultimately, because most people are doing searches and, you know, surfing the web, uh, on smartphones, they need to be there. You know, that that's the one place they really need to be, which is probably also why they're going with the tablet. I mean, and we also have the problem and, and many people have talked about this over the years that really Google has an issue of like, like they have a dual identity, like having Chrome OS and an Android smart and Android, like having two operating systems is kind of a fool's errand. And they should really just concentrate on one instead of trying to make Chrome OS like such a hybrid, um, unless there's something that they're not admitting about Android, meaning that there are massive security flaws within Android that Chrome OS actually resolves. Um, you know, if there's something along those lines going on, I mean, they, they haven't admitted to it, but regardless, yeah, I kind of wish they would pick one and stick with it. And maybe that's why they're making a pixel tablet. Maybe they've seen the writing on the wall and they're aware of this. Uh, but having the, you know, the multiple operating systems, uh, it's, it's not exactly working out for them. And at some point I'm going to do a review of the Asus Chromebook that I have, uh, and kind of talk about the modern experience of Chrome OS, because I think people might find that interesting and there are things to say, and they're not all positive. Um, but yeah, th this just, this doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, I don't think it's Google giving up on Chrome OS. They just know they don't need to do it. Other you know, other hardware, uh, developers, you know, like HP and Lenovo and even Dell and whoever, uh, they're carrying the torch and Google doesn't need to. So, you know, cut the funding where they can. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk more about Google's stunts and, and them, you know, quitting things and what they should be working on or what they shouldn't be working on when we come back with more sovereign tech. Woo! Have you had enough of the big name web hosting services that are long on promises, but short on bleeding edge features, uptime and customer service? Or are you just looking for a performance boost for your business's online presence? The answer is Agorist Hosting. Agorist Hosting is the agile web host that offers full concierge service from website redesign, full e-commerce solutions, even custom apps for your Shopify store and more all with security, reliability, redundancy, and privacy at the forefront. Oh, and those bleeding edge features? How about hosting your data in a decentralized system like IPFS, the interplanetary file system? Good luck getting that from those other guys. Agoras Hosting is ready to take your web presence into the future. Head over to agoristhosting.com to get started. That's A-G-O-R-I-S-T hosting.com agoristhosting.com Story of the Week Ooh, Thank you so much to Agorist Hosting for supporting Sovereign Tech, a longtime sponsor. Really honored by that. Go hit him up, agoristhosting.com Now, because those are people that are doing it right. Now, Let's get back to talking about Android, talking about Google. Are they doing it right? Yeah, <laughs> perhaps not so much. 
And this is a conversation that I want to have around the green bubble and the blue bubble. And those of us, those, the tech savvy know what this is about, especially the iPhone users, you know what this is about. Um, throughout 2022, it's actually been uh, kind of funny at times and frankly insane at just seeing like Google's uh, uh, marketing or advertising attempts. And yeah, I mean, maybe I could pull up a story that gives a list of all of them. I mean, they're, they're buying like they're buying advertisements in the middle of New York city, <laughs> trying to basically goad Apple into adopting RCS. So RCS of course is rich, uh, rich chat services. It is the supposed to be the evolution of SMS. Um, you know, it's, it's an evolution of basic texting services that allows for a lot more features, uh, to be had when sending SMS messages. Okay. Uh, you know, for example, like you can get read receipts where, you know, if somebody saw what you sent, um, you can have uh, emoji reacts, uh, you can potentially send, you know, uh, um, like high resolution photos, video, like there's, there's a lot that can be done with RCS. Now I've been largely supportive of RCS over the years, you know, and it's really an answer to iMessage, you know, to, to Apple's iMessage. And I get that. Okay. Um, and, and let's talk about iMessage for a second here, because iMessage is really like what makes Apple a successful company. Is it the great hardware, the beautiful hardware, you know, the, the, the polished aluminum or whatever, you know, like what, what is it that makes, what is it that makes Apple so fucking profitable? Let me tell you what it is. Yeah, fine. It was that the iPhone came out first, you know, in 2007, but really Apple's profitability comes down to lock in on the iOS ecosystem, you know, or, or the Apple ecosystem. And what is, what's, what causes that lock in? You know, is it, is it iTunes? No, that's available in other places. Uh, so it's not the music. In fact, Apple music's on Android. Um, is it, you know, is, is it Apple pages? Is, is, is their, their office suite just that damn good? Is it final cut pro? Like, what is it that, that locks so many fucking people into Apple's ecosystem that it's, you know, whatever the first trillion dollar company in history. It, I think you can instantly say it is iMessage and iMessage alone. Notice that iMessage is not on Android. Um, and there was conversation of porting iMessage to Android years ago and Apple's C-suite came right out and said, don't do it because then people are going to stop buying iPhones. Right. And of course they would, because you can get a smartphone with that, it, that is infinitely more capable and powerful. Well, maybe not infinitely, but significantly, you know, especially a few years ago that would have features that Apple's only getting to putting in now. Just look at some of Samsung's ads as late <laughs> that are kind of funny against the iPhone. Um, you know, where, where they're like, oh yeah, oh, you got this many, Hey, we've, you've got this many pixels in your iPhone 14 camera. We've been doing that since 2015 or whatever. You, you know what I mean? Like it, it's funny. You can say that they're cheap shots, but it, it, it's funny anyway, to see these, you know, scumbag companies going at each other. Um, but iMessage is really what it's all about. Now there's the lock-in of, you know, like 
okay, people are just using, or it's the inertia, not the lock-in, but there's the inertia of people have gotten used to using iMessage. And so they just kind of keep on using it. And their contacts list is, you know, attached to iMessage. So they just keep using it. Kind of the big thing here with iMessage that RCS does not have, and that Android does not have like a, you know, a one ring to rule them all situation with is that you can send high resolution photos and high resolution videos with iMessage Android with what's built into it does not readily have that available. And that's part of what RCS is trying to address. Even that it's not doing very well. It's more going to like send a link to that is, you know, that could be played quicker, but it's going to send a link to something in Google photos, you know, part of Google drive, which in itself is a problem. Anyway, that's iMessage's big deal. Now, Tim Cook recently came out in response to a lot of the jabs that Google has been paying a pretty penny for against uh, the green bubble, blue bubble problem, you know, messaging between Android and, and iOS, uh, and said, like, look, if you want grandma to get high resolution photos and video, you're going to have to buy an iPhone. And that's it. So he said, iMessage, we're not going to, we're not going to stop, you know, the, the, the blue bubble problem. We're just not going to do it. And is it within their right as a company to do that? You know, if you're into that sort of thing, that, that kind of capitalist, you know, gobbledygook, then sure. It's, it's in, it's, it's within their rights to do that sort of thing. Um, honestly, and and here's the deal, like Google, I'm not going to say that Apple is in any way evil for what they're doing with iMessage and that they're not adopting RCS. Once again, we have a situation here where the narratives are just so far away from the truth. Um, Google knows everything. And a lot of people know everything that I was just saying. Okay. They know the, the power that Apple has with iMessage. What's keeping. So Google knows what's keeping people from buying more Android phones and thus Google keeping Google from collecting more and more data about people via their operating system. What's, you know, what's keeping people from buying more Android phones it is that iMessage lock-in. So they are trying to resolve this. Now, they have been, over the past couple of years, and I'm sure for even much longer, they have been trying to get the Android Messages app, their app that they develop, they've been trying to get it to interact more with iMessage, or, you know, with with, with text sent via iMessage, where, like, you can actually do more native reacts that would register in iMessage, looking more normal. You're still going to run into the green bubble, blue, blue bubble problem but they've been trying to reverse engineer this issue for a long time, but they know that this is what's keeping people from getting there. So they're doing everything they fucking can to, to like force to goad Apple into adopting their, uh, text messaging standard. That being RCS, it's not working. It's not working for, I don't think it's convincing any, or I'm hoping it's not convincing anybody. I can imagine there's people who, and, and you can kind of go online on social media, I suppose, and see this and even journal, some journalists will write about it where it's time for Apple to, you, you know, to, uh, to, to, to adopt RCS. It's time for this to stop. The green bubble, blue bubble problem has to stop. Here's the thing, folks. Again, this is where things are just, where reality just got thrown out. Okay. But by, by both of these companies, here's the thing. You don't need to use Android messages or iMessage. In fact, this is a wholly U.S. problem. I'm not saying the U.S. is holy. I'm saying W-H-O-L-L-Y. 
This is only a problem in the U.S. because the rest of the world doesn't give a rat's ass about SMS. They don't care about iMessage. In fact, like, yes, so I, I think the stats just came out last week that for the first time um, in about a decade, there are more iPhone users than there are Android users. That's for the first time that that's been the case. Okay, and is does that have to do with iMessage? Uh, along with, I suppose, a little bit of boredom. Perhaps if you've been an Android user for a while, you might be like, eh, I wonder what it's like on the other side of the bridge. Okay, a little bit of, a little bit of each of those. But a big part of it, I'm sure, is iMessage for many people. Okay. But in the rest of the world, I mean, Android just dominates. Just fucking dominates. It's not like the, in the rest of the world that people don't want iPhones. They do, partly because of its, uh, dare I say, like American attitude. You know, that people for some reason can still find appealing in other parts of the world. I don't know why, but whatever. Uh, it's like a symbol of wealth, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Come to America. Tell me how many people are actually wealthy. Uh, regardless, in the rest of the world, this isn't an issue. The rest of the world uses WhatsApp or they use Telegram. And that's the thing. This green bubble, blue bubble problem is total American ego. And that's, you know, and, and frankly, American stupidity. You know, an American laziness and oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> sorry, that American work ethic. No, no, shut up. <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> or at least it doesn't anymore. <laughs> this is pure American laziness. And, and like I said, an American stupidity. Uh, this is not a problem in the rest of the world. It, it, it's just not. So what you can do here is completely circumvent this you know, bullshit battle going on between Apple and Google. And all you have to do is choose something like Telegram or Signal, if you want to go with that, or even better, Threema. There, there's plenty of options. Yeah, it's going to be a pain in the ass. I know it's going to be a pain in the ass to convince people, especially, you know, to convince people to move to something else, to move beyond iMessage or SMS in general, even. And I, and I get it, especially since... You know, if you're like a Google fanboy, which, hey, I used to be one, used to be an Apple fanboy too. But anyway, if you're a Google fanboy, you know, you've dealt with Allo, you've dealt with Hangouts, you've had, you know, all of these attempts by Google uh, to get into the messaging game because they know they need to do that because they know how powerful it is for Apple. They know they need that slice of the pie. Uh, and Google in, you know, classic Google fashion dumps it after you know, since 20 billion people, even though there are only 7 billion people on the planet, if 20 billion people don't adopt it, Google doesn't keep it going. Yeah. Believe me, that's their math. Like they're, they already want, like they want babies inside wombs signing up for Gmail accounts. You understand? So I know that you've tried to convince people in the past to get on an alternate uh, messaging platform outside of iMessage or outside of SMS, whatever that happens to look like. But really, like, this is getting so bad right now. Apple's not going to budge. Google's not going to win this thing. And they're going to, they're probably, again, they're going to drop RCS. So if you're counting, and believe me, I'm, I'm a person who was kind of counting on RCS, partly because SMS has such fantastic uptime compared to more, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, server-backed, uh, uh, services or yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't need to get into that, but for me, like 
having one as close to 100% uptime in being able to get a message the moment it gets sent and all this, you know, where I don't have to wait or I'm not worried. Oh, is signal having another outage today or whatever. I couldn't deal with that. So I had to, for, to some degree, you know, be, get used to, uh, SMS. And was I grateful that RCS was available that allowed SMS texts to get end to end encrypted? Yeah, sure. I was okay. But even then RCS kind of the same problem where that would still fail and you'd have to send out, you know, regular, um, uh, SMS messages. And, and that creates a whole confusing issue in itself because at the advantage for RCSs and for a lot of people, it is, is that, Oh, it has, you know, uh, end to end encryption built in, which is a fine thing to want. Um, for a lot of people who aren't so tech savvy, they don't know when it's end to end encrypted and when it's not, even though, you know, there's a little lock icon or whatever, but they just, they don't want to pay attention to it. So you're better off just going again with a third party service like signal or threema or telegram, even though you want to talk about security issues with telegram, that's fine. You can talk about it, but move on with other things. Bottom line being just get the fuck out of the duopoly. Okay. And I'm not saying use WhatsApp. I didn't recommend that. Okay. I know that that's the most popular messaging app in the world. And that frankly, in some parts of the world where you're at, you can't even get around. You can't order food or a taxi or anything without using WhatsApp. You have to use WhatsApp. Or if you're in China, you've got to use WeChat. Or if you're in Japan, you've got to use line messenger. Like this is the thing in other countries. What I'm describing here has already happened and it's happened for like 10 years. It's, it's nothing new to them. They already use something else. They're already out of the fucking, you know, out, out from under Apple and Google's thumb and good for them. So what I'm saying is Americans, you know, like pull up the pants a bit. Okay. And move on. Just do what you have to get people off of iMessage, get people off of SMS and get them on something end-to-end encrypted. Because again, this, this just, this is going to get uglier. Okay. The answer is not to get more people on iMessage. The answer is not to rely on anything that Google's doing. You know, the answer is more to go with the company where their bread and butter is the messaging app, um, you know, that, that they solely develop and that they solely work on. Do I think telegram is a fine option for this? Absolutely. Do I think that Threema is a fantastic option for this sort of thing? You bet your ass. I do signal. Sure. You know, I know that's, that's got some inertia behind it too. Okay. But just get out, get out from underneath this. Okay. Really like the, the, this war, there's no side to take here. Don't take Google side. Don't take Apple side. Don't go with RCS. Don't say, Oh, iMessage is great. Or just get out from underneath it. That's what matters. And this speaks to what we were talking about earlier. We're like using, you know, a messaging app that doesn't rely, um, upon like phone number specific stuff you know, to where you could switch devices with it and use it on, on cross platform and with multiple devices, like that, that's a great advantage, you know, to have there and use that as part of the, as part of the selling point with people, you know, use the privacy, the end to end encryption, use the, um, you know, the cross platform nature of it, all that use that to sell people on, on these ideas. Like it, it is just, it is time more than ever. And it's not just about end to end encryption anymore. Like now it's getting to the point, like, I, I don't know what the fuck these companies are going to do next. It's crazy. So that, that was, that was the whole point of, of the story of the week. I, I just, I can't believe what's happening here. And, and 
to make things worse, like the way these companies, like they're, they're basically going to the Senate about this shit. I mean, it's getting to that point where I'm sure Google is going to want to, would love to lobby the government to force Apple to adopt RCS. Uh, I, I, I mean, Apple's got their own lobbyists. I don't imagine that that's going to, you know, that that's going to work or that that's going to happen, but just don't fall into their game. That's it. Exist within the cracks of the system. And there you go. We'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Just, just stop. SMS, it's, it's dead. It's over. iMessage, dead. Over. Drop it. Anyway, we'll be back with more. Science. Outer space. Psychology. Book and movie recommendations. Fiction from the Sovereign Universe. Travels to points of mystery and the unexplained. And even spirituality? All of that can only mean one thing. The Sovereign Technica Newsletter! By me, Ellen Sovereign. Along with some stuff by that crazy man I call my husband, Dr. Brian Sovereign. It's the latest tool in your self-directed education. The education that really matters. If you want to cut through the crap of mainstream media ass clowns, sign up for the Sovereign Technica newsletter right now at sovereign.substack.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N The Sovereign Technica newsletter. Welcome to the future. Listener's choice. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Man. The absolute 10th wonder of the world right there, Ellen Sovereign. Uh, if you are not reading the Sovereign Technic newsletter, which I'm actually going to dive into a little bit more content from that uh, when we get into the ancient and the strange segment of this episode. Um, but I'll talk about that more when we get to it later. Uh, if you're not reading that, man, are you missing out? I mean, I, I mean it. And <laughs> what a woman. I mean, Daryl Hannah's got nothing. On uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> folks, let's just get into listener's choice. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's talk about Amazon, shall we? We're hitting everybody else up. Are we going to, are we going to talk about Microsoft at some point? I don't know. Everybody rips on them. So <laughs> now I suppose there are Microsoft fanboys out there. I don't get it. You know, like there was a time where I could kind of understand it. Like when Windows 7 came out, like, holy shit, sure. I understand why people are like, wow, Microsoft did everything right. You know, but then that fell apart after just a few years. Anyway, um, like I said, we really, we got to get away from consumer technology, but we're not doing that yet because we got to talk about this coming in from Sovereign Tech Listener from The Verge. If you could tell that that was The Verge, because I don't know what Sanskrit or hieroglyphs they're using here for their name, but it's not even fucking letters anymore. Have you been to theverge.com lately? I mean, you can click the link in the show notes for the story, a uh, story coming from uh, uh, Jennifer Patterson Tui. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't know. I, I mean, I look at that. I, I can, fuck, I can read Arabesh better than I can read whatever the fuck the Verge has on the top of their screen here. This is insane. 
Anyway, moving right along, uh, speaking of insane, here's the headline, Amazon bought iRobot to see inside your home. What a surprise. <laughs> Let's read it here, at least some of it, from Jennifer Pattison Tui. When I spoke to iRobot's Colin Angle earlier this summer, he said iRobot OS the latest software operating system for its robot vacuums and mops would provide its household bots with a deeper understanding of your home and your habits. Uh, this takes on a whole new meaning with the news today that Amazon has bought iRobot for $1.7 billion. You can see Dr. Evil putting up the pinky, right? And this story, by the way, is from August 5th, 2022. So this, this just happened very recently. Um, you know, I want to, I want to take a second here. iRobot actually doesn't make a whole ton of money, uh, from its, you know, from, from like it's, it's vacuum cleaners. And, and I didn't even know they had mops. Um, that's not where they make their money. You know where they make their money? Military contracts. That's where they make their money. Future weapons systems. And I know I was there. I saw in the building, big door FWS. You know, you could right out of Tron. Just, now that is a big door. That was a big door. That's where they make their money. If you want to know where a company makes their money, look for that big door in the building. The biggest one you can find. Anyway, so Amazon basically just became a military company. Buying out iRobot. Moving right along. <laughs> Jennifer Tui, sorry, Jennifer Patterson Tui did not seem to find it fitting to bring that part up, which should be the real rage here, but there's plenty of rage to have when it comes to privacy. Of course, uh, let's keep reading from Jennifer Pattison Tui. From a smart home perspective, it seems clear Amazon wants iRobot for the maps it generates to give it that deep understanding of our homes. That <laughs> like, sorry, I'm just trying to like even get that. I'm I'm trying I'm trying to understand like I'm trying to grok this this, this phrase, this phrasing deep understanding of our homes. Like what, 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 what does that mean? Like, how am I, look, I just live in my house. Like what, what, what is this deep understanding that I'm supposed to have? Is it, was that the direct quote from them saying that with a deeper understanding of your home and habits, I think there was a direct quote from Amazon. This language is so strange. I worry about this sort of thing. In fact, you know what? I may, uh, may, may do some magic here in the BDSM studio Four. of course, BDSM stands for Brian's dungeon of sex and magic. I am going to conjure the dead, much like the witch of Endor. No, not that Endor. That was the moon of Endor with Wicket. It was not Endor. I don't know what the fuck Endor looks like in the star Wars galaxy, but we're not talking about that. Like the witch of Endor calling up Samuel, the prophet to tell Saul that, you're dead, motherfucker. <laughs> I am going to conjure the dead right now, and I am going to bring to life none other than the great George Carlin. George, could you help me to understand, like, what is with this phrasing around, like, this deep understanding of your home? As if your home was some kind of living creature. I don't get it. Why would they talk in such strange terms? Are they trying to, to hide something, sell something? Tell me about it, George. Woo! 
I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by and the Second World War came along and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now, takes a little longer to say, doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea, 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time and the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. <laughs> hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. <laughs> then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. I'll bet you But it didn't happen. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because we were using that soft language. That language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. I'll give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. <laughs> I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. <laughs> room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. <laughs> when I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization. Or a wellness center to consult a health care delivery professional. 
Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. <laughs> and they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're fucking broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail redundancies in the human resources area. So many people are no longer viable members of the workforce. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. Or they depopulate the area. The government doesn't lie and engages in disinformation. The Pentagon actually measures nuclear radiation in something they call sunshine units. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. And some of this stuff is just silly. We know, we all know that. Like on the airlines, they say they want a pre-board. Well, what the hell is pre-board? What does that mean? To get on before you get on? They say they're going to pre-board those passengers in need of special assistance. Cripples! Simple, honest, direct language. There's no shame attached to the word cripple that I can find in any dictionary. No shame attached to it. In fact, it's a word used in Bible translations. Jesus healed the cripples. Doesn't take seven words to describe that condition. But we don't have any cripples in this country anymore. We have the physically challenged. Is that a grotesque enough evasion for you? How about differently abled? I've heard them call that differently abled. You can't even call these people handicapped anymore. They'll say, we're not handicapped, we're handicapable. <laughs> these poor people have been bullshitted by the system into believing that if you change the name of the condition, somehow you'll change the condition. Well, hey, cousin, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. We have no more deaf people in this country, hearing impaired. No one's blind anymore, partially sighted or visually impaired. We have no more stupid people. Everybody has a learning disorder. <laughs> or he's minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child? He's minimally exceptional. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Psychologists actually have started calling ugly people those with severe appearance deficits. It's getting so bad that any day now I expect to hear a rape victim referred to as an unwilling sperm recipient. Ah, see? Now it all makes sense. <laughs> To say they're trying to confuse the issue? I guess so. But it didn't confuse Jennifer Patterson Tui at The Verge. Or whatever that says at the top of that website. Hmm. Reading on. Thank you, George. Reading. Uh, go back to sleep, please. <laughs> Enjoy Sheol, my friend. Uh, <laughs> the vacuum company. Again, that's even that is. Uh, no, it's not a vacuum company. It, it's a military 
fucking organization. Okay. Uh, has detailed knowledge of our floor plans <laughs> and, and crucially how they change. It knows where your kitchen is, which your kids' rooms, uh, which rooms are, well, hmm, I don't know about this writing, which your kids' rooms are, where your sofa is and how new it is. And if you recently turned the guest room into a nursery, oh, you just had to have more little babies and bring them into this hellhole of, of a time right now. Okay. Anyway, uh, reading on this type of data is digital gold to a company whose primary purpose is to sell you more stuff. While I'm interested to see how Amazon can leverage iRobot's tech to improve its smart home ambitions, many are right to be concerned with the privacy implications. People want home automation to work better, but they don't want to give up the intimate details of their lives for more convenience. Uh, I don't believe you. Stallion breaking in. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. People on the regular give up security and privacy for convenience. Convenience seems to be, and maybe this, Back there, I say this adds into more of that American laziness because in other parts of the planet, it seems like privacy, people actually do give a shit about privacy. In fact, they give so much of a shit that half of them want to start an October revolution if they think a company like Google overreaches. And what, what's Google paying out now? You know, some $8 billion fine to the EU? Something to the tune of that. Is that chump change for them? Sure, on the grand scheme of things, but maybe that's what happened to the Pixel Book. Ah, fuck, we gotta pay that EU bill. God damn it. I don't know. But anyway, uh, no, I don't think people here give a rat's fucking ass about privacy. Um, they, they just don't. But let's keep going. <laughs> Okay. This is a conundrum uh, throughout the tech world, but in our homes, it's far more personal. Amazon's history of sharing data with police departments uh, through its subsidiary ring combined with its quote, always listening for the wake word and quote, echo smart speakers. And now it's thorough knowledge of your floor of your floor plan. Give it a pretty complete picture of your daily life. Stallion breaking in to say nothing of the complete picture that Apple or Samsung, or Google has, just from the smartphone in your pocket. No vacuum cleaning required. I guess if I was to give Amazon any credit, at least they picked up their mess after they stole your privacy. Can't say the same for Google. They don't make vacuum cleaners. And thankfully. I mean, I, I, I don't <laughs> <laughs> we'll suck up your floor and your data at the same time, but we won't suck you off because why give you the pleasure? No, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Each of iRobot's connected Roomba vacuums and mops uh, trundles around homes multiple times a week, mapping and remapping the spaces. On its latest model, the J7, iRobot added a front-facing AI-powered camera that, according to Engel, has detected more than 43 million objects in people's homes. Other models have a low-resolution camera that points at the ceiling for navigation. Honestly, Stallion breaking in once again, I would love for, I want to see the data of just, I just want, I want, I want it to be known just how messy people are, you know, in this country on average in their, in their homes. I'd love to see those statistics. Like if, if you're going to take away our privacy, like at least let's turn it into a little bit of reality TV, shall we? And see what the fuck's going on. No, I don't really argue for that, but you get my point. Uh, just more of that laziness moving on. Although uh, really, all this makes it likely, 
uh, or all this makes it likely this purchase isn't about robotics. If that's what Amazon wanted, it would have bought iRobot years ago. Instead, it probably picked up the company for a relative bargain. iRobot just reported a 30% revenue decline in the face of increasing competition. To get a detailed look inside our homes. Why? Because knowing your floor plan provides context. And in the smart home that, uh, that Amazon is making a major play for, context is king. Um, here we go. Quote, we really believe in ambient intelligence, an environment where your devices are woven together by AI so they can offer far more than any device could do on its own. And quote, Marja Koopmans, uh, sounds like Koopa, hmm. director of Alexa smart home told me in an interview last month, ambient intelligence requires multiple data points to work with detailed maps of our uh, homes and the ability to communicate directly with smart home devices. Once matter arrives matter. Now what is matter? So, so this is the thing. There's, there's more here. Let me, let me break this down a little bit. Amazon did not need to, here's part of the, all right. There's a few reasons that I think they actually bought iRobot and we don't even really need to, to read any more of the story. Okay. Um, Amazon actually completely revolutionized, uh, shall we say in home or in warehouse, uh, robotics 20 years ago. I mean, they revolutionized it like the, the network of robots working in your average Amazon warehouse is phenomenal. And what it can do is absolutely phenomenal. And like I said, it was revolutionary at the time that, that Amazon started that. Okay. Um, in fact, really they treat the robots better than their human workers. What, what a surprise. Uh, so they didn't like, they could make their own vacuuming robots and they would probably blow away anything that iRobot has. What Amazon needed here, let's be clear on this. I mean, is this about privacy? Is the verge right on here? Yes. Yeah, that's part of it. Okay. But there's more. But what Amazon really needed here was a brand that was not readily recognizable to the bulk of the population as being Amazon. Because the more Amazon in your house, people do, you know, while, while I don't think that they, you know, Convenience is everything to them and they will trade their privacy and everything else. They do get creeped out when they see enough Amazon. And when you've had the situations like with the ring doorbell, you know, the video doorbell, especially that people are starting to find out about. And even things, you know, where like, uh, you know, malicious actors are like talking to them in their bedroom while they're having sex or something. I mean, we've, we've covered these stories on sovereign tech. Um, yeah, people get creeped out. What they needed was a brand name that people are already invested in, like iRobot, so that they could get this deep understanding of your home. Again, as if your home like was some kind of some uh, 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 client for for Sigmund Freud or something. Which I don't know what the fuck we're thinking about our homes if we <laughs> if we're treating them like that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so that's really what they're buying. They're buying the brand name. They don't need, they don't even necessarily need the technology. However, are they going to take advantage of this technology? Oh, you bet your ass. Because I mean, they already have military contracts, right? They've already, you know, gone toe to toe against Microsoft for getting the Jedi contract. And I don't mean Qui-Gon Jinn, um, you know, to, to get that, like they're dying to have those military contracts because that's guaranteed money. That's why any company tech or otherwise, you know, like really pushes to get, like, they always want either, you know, municipal law enforcement, uh, contracts or military contracts because, you know, the, the authoritarian machine 
is just never going to stop, or at least that's the way it seems. And there's always cash flowing into that. So when you're going into, I mean, this just, this makes perfect sense because look, the same supply chain issue that we were talking about earlier, you know, post pandemic, uh, that affected, that is affecting Google, that is affecting pick your company name is going to, is hitting the Amazon. You know, even Amazon, you know, I jest, even though it's not funny, I jest about how they treat their human workers. They're even trying to improve on that now because they know they're going to lose people and they've got to treat some of their people right because they probably can't like increase their pay. So they just got to, you know, I don't know, at least let them have bathroom breaks. No, I'm not fucking kidding. They wouldn't even let them have fucking bathroom breaks. Fucking insane. Say nothing of the people that died in that goddamn hurricane that happened or tornado. Uh, oh man. Anyway, they know they've got to treat their people better. Okay. But they're going to, they're going to feel the squeeze of supply chain as well. And so how do you offset those profits when, you know, Amazon really only in the past five years started to report profitable quarters before then, remember before then they never reported a profitable, profitable quarter, but now investors want that. And they expect that to continue because once they got the first taste of it, Oh baby, give me more because I just need more, more M O R. Just give me more, 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 more stuff, more money. Madness in its own right. You know, how about a deeper understanding of your investors? Holy shit, they're all insane. So are you. Anyway, um, they need military contracts to offset what's going to hurt them over the next few years with supply chain. Like I said, the economy is going to be fucking ugly for a good long while, you know, and the only response they can do, what, what did, what did, um, uh, what, what did, uh, uh, Joe Budweiser, I'm sorry, Joe, Joe Biden. What, what did that, that asshat say? Recently, he's like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, you know, inflation. It was just a little bit, just a little bit. Look at those percentage numbers, man. That's not a little bit. Fuck. <laughs> You're that close to Weimar, Germany. What the hell are you talking about? That's all you can do is cognitive dissonance. You, 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 all you can do is lie. You know, so what this, in my opinion, what this is really about is two things. One is getting that guaranteed money from military contracts that iRobot already had. Two, because, and again, there's no report here. Uh, and we've had the time to get the report. There is no report here that says they only bought the vacuum or mop end of the iRobot business. No, they bought everything wholesale, military contracts and all. So they want the military contracts. Okay. They guaranteed money and they want the brand name. That way it doesn't have to be Amazon. And you want to say, well, what evidence do you have for that stallion? Like I thought Amazon products, you know, do well in, in each home or whatever. No, 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 no. If that were true, see, Amazon knows better than any of us who's buying what Amazon has to come up with and regularly do. They come up with their own brand names and never tell you that the brand name is actually Amazon for everything from like a bed that you buy to a shirt that you buy to whatever. It won't say that it's Amazon, but it's actually a company owned by Amazon. It's similar to like what Sony did with Iowa, right? Iowa was just internally built competition, but it wasn't really competition because Sony was reaping in all the profits. It was the same goddamn company. This is the same thing Amazon's doing. Like they're creating a faux competition within a monopsony. Okay. But also they're doing it because they know that people eventually will see, wait a minute, why the fuck is my house completely filled with Amazon shit? And they're going to get creeped out and rightfully so. So to prevent that, what do you do? You have other brands, even though it's still all just Amazon. iRobot will be the same situation. 
it, it's a faux sense of trust. I mean, look, and this is this is my problem with what the with the Verge is reporting because they're saying that well, you know, people are you know they they don't want to uh, to get here it is, but they don't want people want home automation to work better, but they don't want to give up the intimate details of their lives for more convenience. That's horseshit. Because nothing's changing here. Okay, what, Amazon's going to collect all the information now? But that didn't mean that iRobot wasn't collecting it all before. Of course they were. What, you're okay with iRobot collecting the info, but you're not okay with Amazon? What world does that fucking make sense? So no, don't tell me that people actually give a shit. They don't. And it's sad. You can, I hope you do, we can on this show and we can talk about the stuff and we can actually dig in to the reality. We can dig into the white space of this journalistic text and see what's actually happening. But don't pretend for a second that, that people care because the journalists obviously don't either. And are you kidding me? The fucking Verge relies on Amazon backlinks as much as anybody fucking else. I know this business. I know this business too well. It's my day job. It's what I do. <laughs> I'm constantly schlepping these fucking journalists you know, and not, not all of them are fuckers, but I'm constantly schlepping these people. Hey, my clients got this shit on Amazon. Here's a backlink. You get a little cut of it. Go for it, baby. Write up a story. Thank you. I do it all the time. Acting like they, 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 the verge acting like they care about privacy. Give me a fucking break. So they're all, they're fuck them all. <laughs> you know, Amazon, the verge, all of them. Stop. It, it, it's, it's all nonsense language, just like George Carlin was talking about. Anyway, <laughs> we'll try and have a little bit of fun as we go further into show. Uh, we'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Oh, boy. Somebody give me a drink. Hey, baby, I know. I know. You are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to FastMail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup and it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. Shall we play a game? Woo! All right. We're going to try and have some fun here. Maybe there's one company that's not fucking tracking everything you do. <laughs> no. Nintendo collects plenty of data. Let's, let's let's not make any mistake about it, though. They're usually a little more careful about how they talk about that. Uh, I remember Doug Bowser's little flub about, oh, yeah, we know every time that you're in handheld mode <laughs> with your Switch. But anyway, um, Nintendo, you know, it's the company that, in my opinion, has put more smiles on faces than, frankly, any other company uh, in history. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm always... Uh, always got that soft spot in my heart for them. And they had just this past week, um, they had a, what they call a Nintendo direct. Um, this would have been on Tuesday and it was early in the, you know, very early uh, in the morning. I want to say they, they launched it at like 10 AM Eastern. Um, and their Nintendo directs. I mean, this is an interesting thing. We're going to talk about video games. Obviously, you know, the segment, um, their Nintendo directs like 
you know, a big thing in the gaming industry used to be what they called the ele uh, Electronics, uh, you know, Entertainment Expo, E3, as it would get uh, known because of the three E's. Um, and, you know, there's others like the, the Tokyo Game Show. Um, I mean, there's been many over the past, frankly, you know, since the late 80s. And really, partly due to the Internet, but really Nintendo has gotten to the point where they don't need to appear at any of these gaming shows, uh, you know, conferences ever again. Um, they completely dominate their field, uh, in a very real way. Um, I mean, granted, yes, Sony and Xbox can kind of do the, th the same thing and they have their own versions of directs that they can do, but usually they'll still show up at E3 and other places. Um, but in many ways, a lot of those, you know, gaming conferences, some of which during the pandemic didn't even happen, but a lot of those, have become platforms more for gaming publishers and not so much, you know, any of the, the big three, uh, console developers. Um, but Nintendo really, I mean, like they just for, you know, 24 to 48 hours, at least when they announce a direct or when they're going to have a direct and they don't have to like plan it ahead of time or anything. They'll, they'll just tell you, yeah, we're having one tomorrow. See you there. And they're, they dominate communications for, you know, again, 24, 48 hours. I mean, they just dominate. That's what everybody's talking about. It's, it's frankly remarkable. Um, even I, you know, I don't care to watch, uh, you know, like Apple, uh, shows anymore or Google show, you know, like IO or anything like that. I mean, I still do for sovereign tech purposes, but I don't care to watch any of those. Not, not with the passion that maybe I did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but boy, a Nintendo direct I'm fucking there. <laughs> And I'm watching it live. Uh, and this was an exciting one. So the September 2022 Nintendo Direct, we're going to get into a review of it. There were so many. This was over 40 minutes. Um, there were, I mean, almost, depending upon how you count them, over 40 games. I mean, you're talking about potentially a game a minute that they were discussing. There's no way that I'm going to break down all 40 games here. Frankly, for me personally, there aren't even that many that were that interesting, not to say that there weren't interesting things discussed. Um, but I want to get into some of the exciting things that they did announce. Of course, the biggest announcement was the launch, the official launch date, which I'm sure is still subject to change, but the official launch date for breath of the wild two, along with the actual name of the game, which is, uh, you know, the legend of Zelda tears of the kingdom. Uh, that is going to be breath of the wild two. And you know, when that comes out and the date is, haha. <laughs> My birthday. <laughs> what a gift. Uh, May 12th, 2023, when that comes out, um, that, you know, talk about like dominating communications mediums. I mean, it's, it's over. Like that's all anybody's going to fucking talk about. And frankly, Xbox and, or, you know, Microsoft and Sony should be counting their blessings that they know what two or three months to just not bother doing anything during, you know what I mean? Like, from May 12th to, your, fr frankly, the beginning of May, really from now till then, but but from the beginning of May till, you know, maybe even end of summer, just don't release anything <laughs> because everybody's just going to be playing this fucker. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, they gave us a little bit of a longer trailer, not much, but, you know, all it has to do is mimic that style of gameplay and give new story. And, you know, add in a couple of new abilities or new vehicles, shall we say, for Link to take advantage of within the game. And it's, it's just, it's going to do what it does. I mean, it's Zelda. It's, it's, 
that's it. That was, that leads me actually speaking of Zelda, that leads me to what I consider to be the actual disappointment. Um, and I had hopes, like I didn't need to know, uh, you know, like when, when breath of the wild two is coming out, I know it's coming. And when it comes out, it doesn't need marketing. It doesn't need anything. It's, it's just, everybody's going to be talking about, it. it's just going to dominate. Um, but what I really wanted to come out of this was the announcement of, um, re-releases remakes of wind waker HD from the Wii U era, which of course originally also came from GameCube and twilight princess. That's what I really wanted because once you get those on switch, you essentially have just about, I mean, minus something, you know, for, uh, the game boy series, uh, or game boy family, I should say you essentially have like every major Zelda game on the switch. And that is awesome. You know, to, to have that all on one console, to be able to go through that much gaming greatness all at once. Uh, so I was a little disappointed in that. So I want to be clear. This wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Also, we're still delayed on the Advance War reboots or remakes, uh, which those I was super excited about from a Nintendo Direct over a year ago now. Uh, and it's been constantly delayed. I, you know, Nintendo's not saying why. Uh, maybe they just have to make so much money off of those to justify the remakes that they can't have anything else coming out in between. I don't, I don't really don't get their logic here. Um, but anyway, that was, I mean, the big news for many was just even just coming out. What is the name of the, of Breath of the Wild 2? What is the release date? And then, uh, for me, the big disappointment was the fact that we did not get, um, more Zelda games, you know, re, uh, at the very least re-releases. I don't even, or just remasters. I don't need remakes. Uh, just remasters would have been awesome and it didn't happen. Uh, I guess the other big news, Pikmin four, which had been kind of rumored for many years that that was going to happen. Um, I mean, they had almost nothing on it. Like they showed a couple screenshots. Sure. You know, Miyamoto san came out and talked about it, which is always great to see him. Um, that guy just is always smiling. Uh, you know, that was great, but you know, Pikmin is what it is. It, it's a cute version of an RTS. And if you're into that, you know, I'm sure it's exciting. Uh, but they really didn't show much. I thought that that was kind of weird why they felt like they needed to talk about that. They would have been done much better to have brought up Metroid prime four perhaps and showed some footage from that. But again, that's another thing. We're still not getting anything about that. Uh, though we are finally, of course, getting Bayonetta three, which was a subject in, uh, you know, within this as well. Um, for me again, it was a lot of JRPG stuff. It's insane to think about and really stop and think about this. How many fucking games square Enix is putting out just on the switch in the next year. I mean, there's gotta be over 20 games. This is crazy when you think about the fact that like Square, Squaresoft, particularly back in the day, I mean, you were lucky if you got a game a year out of those guys, you know, because they do their big epics with Final Fantasy and all that. And I just, I don't know, I worry, like, I worry about a quantity over quality situation here. Um, but the best thing I can think is that just they've been developing these games for many, many years. And now they're just all happen to be able to come out at once. Um, that's the only thing I can imagine because they don't even really have the manpower to have this much out there, but we are getting Octopath Traveler too. Uh, I don't think it was a surprise to anybody, but that's pretty exciting. What was a surprise for many, even though it, there had been plenty of leaks and rumors coming out around it, uh, is that golden eye as in the N64 golden eye is coming to Nintendo Switch, uh, and particularly to Switch Online to play. Um, it, I haven't gotten a whole ton of clarity because it's also coming to Xbox and Xbox, um, Xbox Live. I haven't gotten a whole ton of clarity on if you're going to, I mean, because Switch can't do 4K 
but for Xbox is going to be a 4k remaster. I don't know what exact version we're getting for and how this is going to work. Uh, if it's part of the expansion pack for switch online that we're going to get with 007, that, that that's kind of weird because you might be getting an inferior version, but are people ultimately going to matter, you know, going to care? Not really. Um, I get the argument that's, and, and I've even heard it recently some people are like, have you played GoldenEye recently? The game just doesn't hold up. And honestly, I could just turn right here in the studio and, oh no, actually Ellen's not right behind me. <laughs> oh, she's here. She's coming up the stairs. <laughs> Captain on deck. Uh, I mean, you, you just recently replayed GoldenEye on the N64. I beat it. You beat it. How does that, I mean, doesn't that game hold up? Oh, fuck yeah. Yes, fuck yeah. It's tons of fun. Exactly. So I don't know what people are talking about with that. Do you have any idea what the hell people are thinking with that? Do you have a theory? Maybe it's the resolution, but I love the black faces. Yeah, maybe it's the resolution, right? The graphics just don't look good. And I mean, it is kind of a primitive FPS compared to like, uh, I don't know, Halo or something like that, I suppose. But yeah, anyway, Ellen still loved it. And what more of a review do you need? Thank you. Thank you so much, beautiful. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so I don't get that. Um, I think that's going to be a great time. And to have, you know, maybe one of the biggest problems is getting more, getting people together, four people together to sit down and play that thing, which is really where the fun is. The fun isn't even in the game. The fun is in getting people together. Um, I'll admit that, you know, having online multiplayer functionality built into 007 this way, which is what's claimed, I think, even for the Switch, uh, that could get, that could make that game a lot more fun again. Um, because you don't have to worry so much about getting people in meat space, even though I still think that's the ultimate way to, to rock that fucker. Um, anyway, that, that was a really big announcement. And there were a lot of other, uh, N64 games, uh, that got announced that are coming to switch online. I mean, absolute classics like, uh, pilot wing 64. That's a necessity. Uh, 1080, you know, 1080 degrees. That's a snowboarding game. Phenomenal. Excite bite 64, uh, getting some Mario party action, Pokemon stadium one and two. Uh, I mean, you're getting just a ton of great action, uh, in on, you know, as far as like with switch online at this point, the expansion pack for switch online, which I was initially very critical of is now starting to show its value. Um, I've been impressed with even a lot of the Genesis games that have come out lately on uh, switch online expansion for, for Genesis. Uh, you know, it, again, it, it really is starting to be where, okay, the money that you put down for that now it's worth it. At first it certainly wasn't, um, room here. Here's another one that I thought was, uh, there's two that got talked about that. I don't feel like enough people are talking about that. They should be that are actually for me, really the most exciting games to get announced. Um, and that would be, uh, well, I guess I'll start with this one. That would be room factory three. Uh, it's a remake. So it's Rune factory three special. Uh, the Rune factory series is kind of like monster hunter or final fantasy with a dating sim built into it and, and kind of a farming sim as well. It's really in many ways, like a full on lifestyle sim, but that plays in a more final fantasy fashion or a monster hunter fashion. Uh, I love these games. Um, Rune factory four. I've played a ton on three DS, uh, Rune factory three. I understand where a lot of people feel that's actually the better game. Rune Factory 5 just came out for Switch as a new game, um, but the reviews for that were a little... I haven't had the chance to play it, but the reviews for that were admittedly shaky. So re remastering and re-releasing Rune Factory 3, I think, is a, is a winning option. And if you've never played the series, I would honestly wait for this to come out and start with Rune Factory 3, because it's probably the best the series has ever done. 
So I think it makes sense that they're doing that. I thought that was exciting. The other part that was really exciting for me, the other game, it's actually three games. We are getting remakes of, and these are full-on remakes, not just remasters like what came out for the PSP and Vita. Um, remakes of Front Mission uh, 1, 2, and 3. Front Mission is their kind of turn-based strategy with gigantic mechas, you know, gigantic robots, as the Japanese love, and so do I. Um, these, these like the storylines, the complexity of the gameplay and everything, I love these. These are really, really hardcore simulators. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm jazzed for these. In fact, they might have been next to like GoldenEye and, you know, a couple other things. Like, ultimately, these are the ones where like, okay, if I was going to do a day one buy on any of these games, minus Breath of the Wild 2, or Tears of the Kingdom, as I should say, uh, minus that, the day one buy on this whole list would easily be Front Mission, uh, the Front Mission games. Those are going to be awesome. And I hope they're not really full price, even though they are full on remakes and they could probably justify it. Um, I, yeah, th these are, these are going to be a great time. We're getting one and two, I think before end of the year. And then the third one will come out in 2023. Granted the remasters that were done for, uh, for Sony's portable consoles were amazing. And, you know, if you've played those, I don't know that these are really going to be worth it, but I love the front mission series. It's along with like armored core, you know, and, and so on. Uh, yeah, I'm just, you got giant mechas. I'm there. So anyway, uh, it was overall, it was a great Nintendo direct a way more positives than negatives. And again, the negatives were very few. Um, there was really a lot here to enjoy. Uh, the only negatives, like I said, are what kind of what wasn't there. And then things that it was interesting to hear Nintendo say like, Hey, okay, we're going to put out this DLC for this game, but we need a little more time to get it right. I was amazed for them to say that in the middle of a direct, but that's just how confident of a company they are right now. And I guess ultimately I'm glad that they have that confidence. So the September 22, uh, 2022 Nintendo direct, if you want to watch the whole thing, um, I put a link in the show notes for it. And we'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Game on, everybody. Journey into the far reaches of Aqua Space. Attention, security breach. Brace for impact. Seal out of doors, rig for collision. Launch countermeasures. From Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment Inc. and Universal Television comes a journey into the future and beneath the sea. Roy Scheider stars in Sequest DSV. You can watch Sequest by downloading it from your favorite torrent site or getting it on glorious DVD. For beneath the surface lies the future. Album of the week. Ooh, it is time for album of the week, where we get to have a you know get to kick back and listen to some music. Well, no, I don't play it on the show, uh, but you get to go out there and find it. And you know what? Like, there was a time where I guess this segment might not have, even though it's a very popular segment, one of the most popular segments Sovereign Tech has ever done. Um, it's why it keeps coming back. Uh, there was a time where maybe this was a kind where this is sort of an impractical segment to do because you'd have to buy like a new album every week. Not to say that there isn't always great music from somewhere coming out every week. And there is, uh, actually there's a lot of it. If you go outside of America, there's tons of great new music out there, especially in the metal scene. Um, 
but now, you know what, most people and, you know, as Sovereign Tech being, you know, on Anchor like this, I guess, not a surprise, uh, you know, most people have Spotify or Apple Music or whatever or Pandora or, you know, something that they stream from. And you kind of have access to just about everything, unless it's something that's like rare and, you know, genuinely amazing. Well, no need to, to get into ribbing there. <laughs> so, but now you don't have to buy you know, the album, uh, it'd be nice if you did, but you don't have to. And this album of the week was a bit of a surprise and something that I just so happened to get uploaded onto Plex, uh, and tried it out totally on a lark. And it is, I, I still can't find out how to pronounce this. I've looked, I've tried to find how to pronounce this name. It is the, the Aranese it's E R I N Y E S. And it is a band. It's three gals. They got there. It's a metal band pretty much. Uh, and they, you know, kind of more of a power metal type. Uh, they got a, a deal through frontiers, which great frontiers, you know, music SRL, uh, are probably regularly churning out some of the best music out there right now. Of course, it's an Italian record company. Um, but I mean, music's in English folks. Like, I mean, they're doing deals with, you know, some of the, the biggest acts in history. Uh, and I mean, I mean, really, if I see that an album that comes out in a week is published by like Napalm Records or Cleopatra even, or, um, you know, or, or again, Frontiers, uh, you know, Frontiers SRL, uh, I'm going to give it a shot unless I know it's death metal. And then that's just not exactly my thing. I, I don't have anything really against it. It's just not my, I have very limited time to get shit into my ears and I got to spend time on what, you know, like I know I'm going to enjoy more and will probably uplift me. And that's really it. This album, the, the Aranese, and it's a self-titled album from 2022, just came out last week in September of 2022, uh, is pretty uplifting stuff, pretty, pretty deep stuff as well. Like there's some real emotional, heartfelt things and there's some great harmonies from these three gals, uh, but some great epicness as well within that. So if you're a power metal fan, um, I mean, this is something you're really going to enjoy, but it has, you know, there's just, there's a bit of a softer touch to it that I really, really liked. And I would love to see this act, you know, in concert. Um, because you know, when you, there, there's just certain bands that you, you, you can think about, um, especially like some of like those Viking bands and whatever, there's some bands that you can think of where, you know, you go to the concert and it's like, you're going to a ritual. Um, and I could imagine th this, this being such a case, uh, they, they kind of remind me with a little less synth. They remind me of like Amberian Dawn, which I'm a big fan of, of that group. Um, yeah, you're just, you're really in for a treat with this. Uh, I mean, it, it opens right up like really positive energy because it just opens right up with this like one minute or two minute, uh, opening track, getting you ready for, for the, the top track, which is drown the flame, uh, that just constantly re repeats life needs love. Life is love. It's beautiful. What a great message, you know, to get out there. Um, and especially when you get a nice hard rock edge on it. I, I, I mean, not that the opener has that, but, um, but throughout, throughout the whole thing, there, there's some slow songs, but some of them are really, like I said, really uplifting shit. I, I, I dig it. Uh, so anyway, the, the Aranese, Aranese, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but link is in the show notes. Um, or at least the spelling, I should say, not the link, but the spelling is in the show notes if you want to check it out. But I really, really recommend that you do, um, you know, if you can appreciate that kind of metal. Anyway, that's it for your album of the week. We got a lot more to talk about and let's get to it. I'll see you after the break. 
from Big Finish Productions. Blake 7, the classic audio adventures. I'm taking Liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes. What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Kerr Avon. Kerr Avon. Our hostage arrives, which you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com. and the strange Ooh, time for the new segment the ancient and the strange and you know i got so much and, and really i'm honored by this uh i got so much positive feedback to the um well what i did was i actually read from the first issue of the sovereign technica newsletter i read the entirety of my spirituality section and discussed for the purposes of this segment going forward into the future um, what gets meant when terms like mystical, divine, spirituality, religion, and so on, what do these terms mean? How, you know, how should they be defined? What is getting talked about here? Because again, we're going to talk about the ancient and the strange and esotericism is going to come up folks. Um, I got tremendous response from that and I did not really see any negativity. Um, this week, because of the response, uh, I want to follow it up with reading the next from issue number two uh, of the Sovereign Technica newsletter. Uh, I want to read the next segment or uh, yeah, segment that I wrote um, for the Sovereign Technica newsletter of, of spirituality. And this is one that is ultimately all about books, which books, let us be clear here, are a technology. Um, like I know we like to think of when we say technology, we just like to think of electronics. That is a misnomer. Okay. Uh, books in themselves are a technology. And I want to talk about that and the importance of that. And I'm probably, I'm not going to do every spirituality section, uh, you know, reading from every spirituality section of the sovereign technical newsletter. Um, because there are things that I write up like on naturism and others that, well, it's just not a fit here. It would be, it would, it might fit as something separate, you know, as like a separate audio, uh, a separate podcast of a type, but it would not fit in here. But I think that this conversation around books and to expand a little bit more, because like the first three or four or five issues of the Sovereign Technica newsletter, you know, I was laying the groundwork for this conversation around the esoteric, the occult and, you know, mysticism and, and ultimately spirituality. Um, I think it makes sense to kind of like lay out that groundwork for a little bit. And then we can really get into talking about the ancient and the strange, and you're going to have a foundation of where I'm coming from when I talk about these subjects. Um, I mean, and we're going to have fun with these subjects, you know, ancient tech, 
strange, you know, like, like things that just the unexplained as it were, as William Shatner might talk about, um, you know, or the in search of that Leonard Nimoy would talk about, <laughs> uh, you know, things in, in that, in that flavor, but you need to know where I am coming from. And I want to be upfront and honest with you on all of that. So it's another reason that I want to, you know, really, again, read that groundwork from the spirituality section. And I hope it entices you also to become a subscriber of the Sovereign Technica newsletter. I won't, you know, won't deny that. Um, but ultimately, again, it is about laying that foundation of what we're going to talk about in this segment going forward, because this segment's going to be a part of Sovereign Tech for a very long time, if not forever. Uh, so here we go uh, from the issue two of the Sovereign Technica newsletter the spirituality section discussing books. The year 70 CE. The place, Jerusalem. The situation, a not-so-little temple is about to be destroyed by the Roman Empire, who had just retaken the ancient city of Jerusalem, marking the end of the first Jewish-Roman war that started in 66 CE. It's a bloody conflict that leaves the Jews of that time without a home, and more importantly to the freshly conquered people, without a central place of worship, Herod's Temple, or more popularly known as the Second Temple. For ancient peoples, this is a double travesty, not only losing the autonomy of your claimed ancestral homeland, but also losing the site and center of your religious observance as a people. The effect of the Roman destruction of the Second Temple is incalculable on the Jewish people of the first century CE. An identity as an ethnicity and as a religion was for all intents and purposes destroyed. But somehow the Jews go on to this very day and not a single Roman in sight. In the 21st century, many people don't realize just how intertwined ancient peoples were with their land and their land with their religion. Sure, patriotism is a thing today. Sadly, I had hoped it would have gone out of fashion by now. But patriotism is an argument over imaginary lines like borders that can and do change often. No, what I'm talking about is an inextricable link between a populace, their faith, and the very land they exist upon and have done so for, at least, centuries. Perhaps the most modern example to understand would be the Samoans of Hawaii. They are ethnically distinct, they have ancient belief systems, and part of that belief system is that the Hawaiian islands literally have a spiritual energy to them called mana that powers them as a people, but can only come from those specific islands, or a few others like in French Polynesia. It's a relationship between a people, the divine, and land. The Jews in the first century CE, before and after, had that same relationship with Jerusalem. Note, whether or not Jerusalem is the actual ancestral homeland is a matter of debate that I won't get into here, but I have discussed it many times on Sovereign Tech, as well as Wednesday Q&A episodes for subscribers to my Patreon. End note. So without their temple to sacrifice at and worship properly from, and not having control of their holy land, how is it that the Jews have survived to today? Time and again throughout history, a similar event where an ancient civilization loses its homeland and its sites of religious significance happens and they disappear, and with any luck are at least relegated to the history books. But why didn't the Jews disappear? Answer? Books. Okay, honestly, there's never only one answer to big questions upon the stage of history, but this is a pretty significant part of it that Jews themselves recognize. When the Romans were coming, when they ransacked all that the Jews held dear outside of their families and their God, they looked at all their culture and all of their secrets, everything that made them distinct, and they wrote that shit down. 
It started with the Mishnah, a text that compiled what Jews called the Oral Torah, a companion to the written Torah, that being the five books of Moses. Then came the Tosefta, then the two Talmuds, the Bahir, Sefer Yetzirah, the Zohar, and so on. They wrote it all down, cherished those books as if they were a living, sapient thing, and protected them with their very lives. You see, the Jews couldn't disappear or be forgotten. They could never be wiped out because they had their books. Books that were far more than stories. They were instructional, culturally relevant, and gave their readers commentary on not just the past, but the present and future, and even gave direct, actionable insights. Am I saying these books are the whole truth and nothing but the truth? No, not at all. But there is much truth within them. And that's the second half of why these particular books mattered. They weren't just full of fairy tales. Again, because there was truth in these books, because what was in these books was applicable and practical, they survived. No people that have gone through what the Jews have gone through would defend books to the death if the pragmatic power of those books wasn't on display in their lives. That's why even when other populations have had their own holy books, they still disappeared. These supposed holy books had little to nothing to teach what allowed you to engage the universe around you, and more importantly, the universe within you. Spirituality can be a deeply personal thing, altering and empowering that inner universe. But you can also see it have an effect on the universe around you, even if it's just how you see the universe. As we continue to explore spirituality in this segment of the Sovereign Technica newsletter, it's important that you test your theories and beliefs and do what you can to preserve them. And while we can't all put our theories and beliefs to the test of thousands of years as the Jews have, we can at least try to expand and preserve our truths, even if it's just to ourselves. We'll be exploring not just theory here, but also actionable aspects of spirituality. And I think it very worthwhile to document your journey. Consider writing in a journal, or doing a podcast or audio logs of what you experience and think, or even make videos if you like. You never have to share them with anyone else, but keeping a record of your journey into spirituality and your outer and inner universe is one way that you can achieve immortality, just like those dusty old Hebrew books. And that is the spirituality segment from issue two of the Sovereign Technica newsletter. This is such an important point to bring up, and it is the ultimate point. I'm not talking about, you know, spirituality as real estate or anything along those lines. That was not the purpose of that write-up. The purpose of that was to highlight the importance of documenting what you experience, what you learn going forward. And it's a very easy thing to do. I mean, I listed off a bunch of ways to go about that. Uh, but let's always appreciate the book for what it is. The book that doesn't require electricity. The book that doesn't need a battery. The book that you can hold in your hand, open it up at any point, and it could stand the test of time. And a properly made book really can last for hundreds of years, if not much more. I mean, we know we have them <laughs> that are that old. It's a powerful thing. And we do well with the technology that we do have to in some way document our experiences, especially when it comes to encountering, shall we say, the ancient and the strange. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. The most incredible television event ever as you join the crew of Battlestar Galactica. Right here, you creepy crawling. I have led the entire human race to ruin. The last of mankind. 
fighting for life in a hostile galaxy. Most of us are dead. Alone, with only one hope, Battlestar Galactica and her crew. There is no other destination. Commander Adama, Captain Apollo, the intrepid Starbuck, and the dazzling Athena. Searching for a new and peaceful world. We may as well live for today. We might not have many left. Let the attack begin. New age of high adventure, Battlestar Galactica. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the climax where I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And I don't want to necessarily spend a whole ton of time on this one, but I want to talk about a movie series. I originally actually planned to talk about this during the Wednesday Q and a, uh, for patrons only again, just go to patreoncom slash sovereign tech to get your hookup for that. I originally planned on talking about it there. Cause I will do on the Q and a's at the end of each Q and a, I will usually do a movie of the week and I was going to bring this up. Um, but I didn't get the, because we ended up going almost two hours frankly, talking about a bunch of biblical shit, <laughs> um, even though there, there was tech in there and, and, and other things, uh, I, yeah, I, I wanted to get this out there because some of this stuff was kind of mind blowing to me. And so anyway, Mrs. Sovereign and I, we were recently rewatching one of my favorite film franchises, uh, that being the underworld series. Don't laugh. I'm not kidding. Uh, I think these movies are fantastic. And it's not only because J. Michael Straczynski helped co-write some of them. I, I, I am saying like, like these movies are genuinely great for, for many reasons. Um, I mean, yes, I like vampire, uh, media in general anyway, as, as long as it's not twilight or the vampire diaries, but in general, I like vampire media. Uh, and you know, it's just, these are, this is a franchise much like resident evil. Not so much that it's like avant-garde, like Resident Evil is, um, but in, in its cool factor. And, you know, after watching all five of these movies, you know, which started in 2003 and culminated in 2016, you know, I mean, you have Underworld, then Underworld Evolution, then Underworld Rise of the Lycans, Underworld Awakening, and then Underworld Blood Wars. And, you know, there's a little anime and other things in between that, and even a PS2 game, which I actually own a hard, hard copy of. Uh, but anyway, um, after watching them, like I was instantly thinking, wow, I hope they're going to make another one of these. And I wanted to look into that, you know, uh, and in my digging around on that, there has been, you know, since the last movie came out, blood wars, which I love that movie. It's a little, I get it. Like the editing is really fast paced. There must've been some edict from on high that being Sony to say, Hey, you can't make these movies longer than an hour and a half. And I don't know what the hell the logic was behind that, but there's plenty of story and exploration and exposition in these movies where they could do two, two and a half hours easy. And I don't know why they didn't, but whatever. Um, blood wars brings so much more into the mythos of these, uh, you know, the mythology of this series. It's, it's a shame they didn't get to like really sit with it in the movie, um, and explore it more. But anyway, uh, so, you know, I had, I had essentially like said, I mean, Ellen and I, we, we, watched, um, the resident evil, uh, series of films, which I love those. Um, yeah, I know they're nothing like the game. It, it doesn't matter. They're great movies on their own. Live with it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like 
I mean, I, I again, I just like these movies as is. Um, but I'd kind of written them off in that Kate Beckinsale, who's you know the lead character playing Celine. Um, she had said back when Blood Wars came out, about a year after Blood Wars came out, she basically said, "Yeah, I'm never going to do those again." But then I guess a couple of years ago, she actually said, "Oh no, I'd I'd, I'd do it again. I'd get back into Underworld." So maybe that's going to end up happening. But I looked into it. It doesn't sound like there were any plans for another for a sequel film anyway. But there were plans for a TV series. Problem is the TV series, like the producers came right out and said, um, yeah, we're looking to do, and apparently it's still somewhat active, even though this has been announced like in 2019. Um, they said, yeah, we're, we're going to do an underworld TV series, but it's not going to be anything like the movies. And of course, my response to that is, well, then why fucking do it? Like if you're making it because there's an audience, why make something that's not like the movies? And it's a shame too, because like, what is it going to be like? Like the, the, the style of the underworld series is so varied, you know, at first they're copying the matrix, which I think is a fine thing because the matrix had such a cool style. Yeah. Keep it coming. Just like, am I going to complain that the max Payne games had bullet time in them? Fuck no. That's really cool. You know, uh, just underworld had a blue hue to the camera instead of a green hue. Yeah. Like I, I have no complaints about that. Just like, are you going to make a clone of star Trek? Why would I complain about that? as long as it's actually going to be like a proper clone and get, you know, some of the high notes, right. And I kind of think that underworld did similarly with, uh, you know, with its, its rendition, shall we say of the matrix styling, not necessarily the storytelling, but the styling. Um, it's part of what I love about it. It's, it's like the matrix light. It's so cool. Uh, anyway, like there are so many different styles. Like you have the third movie with rise of the lichens where it's all medieval, you know, and you could have gone with the medieval series. Why would that be different than the underworld movies? Or unfortunately is even though blood wars, I do enjoy the film. I recognize that it was copying game of Thrones. Um, it did certainly, you know, it's not hard to do better than game of Thrones since it's such a piece of shit. Uh, and I think blood wars succeeded in that. So, you know, blood underworld can take on different styles and it already took on so many, I just don't see why they'd want to change that, but whatever that's, that's irregardless. What really blew me away here. Okay. Cause I think I already talked about what made these movies great, especially if you're into vampires, you're just in for such a treat. What really made, what, what really got me intrigued was again, some of the things that were supposed to be done with the underworld series that never happened. And this has only come out in the past couple of years. And I mean, we're talking like in 2021, um, I was blown away by two things. One is, and this will lead to the second thing. One is that there was supposed to be a crossover with the blade movies as in Wesley Snipes blade. That would have been awesome. Huge fan of that whole trilogy. Great movies. Um, but not only that, like I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, that's kind of cool. But then is that bringing underworld into the Marvel universe? Well, that's what blew my mind. Okay. I'll talk about that in a second because they were also going to do a crossover with the resident evil series, which in my opinion would have been amazing because I mean, th there you've got it. You have two characters, you know, Celine and Alice that, you know, are both kick-ass in their own right. Um, I think that would have been a phenomenal film and it would have fit because, you know, zombies, vampires, come on, you know, in lichens, sure. Werewolves. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so it's a shame that didn't happen. Yeah. There's the I Frankenstein crossover. I kind of knew about that, that I Frankenstein, which, most people don't even remember that movie from 2014. Um, I, I remember like there, there was supposed to be, uh, in fact, even in like the comic Celine was supposed to be in that. Uh, but that movie was like in the, the underworld universe, which like I'm aware of that. Um, but speaking of comic books, this is what blew my mind. 
I had no idea that the creator of the Underworld series actually based Kate Beckinsale's character of Celine on Celine the Mutant from X-Men, who she's like the oldest living being on the planet, on, on Earth. Great character, kind of the antithesis to, to Emma Frost, kind of a, the antithesis to the White Queen in a way. She dresses more like the Black Queen and has even been called that. Uh, you know, there's the time where she took over Nova Roma and anything. Great character. Um, I don't really recall her being like a vampire. I mean, she's a very powerful character for sure. Uh, but I guess now it's considered official that Celine of Underworld is the Marvel mutant. And that's how it would have fit with her being in Blade. But like that fact that she's like a, Mar a technically a Marvel character, that blew my mind. And I'm supportive of it because as long as it's not part of the MCU, you know, it's not, as long as it's not a part of Disney's Marvel cinematic universe, then I'm on board with it. Like I love Marvel movies outside of the MCU. It's the MCU that I have a problem with. Uh, and I guess the only reason that the blade crossover didn't happen, which would have been fucking epic. The only reason it didn't happen is because, well, here it is. Disney said, Oh no, we're, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do our own version of blade. So we're not going to let a separate blade movie get made go figure disney ruins things once again um but that just blew my mind that that these are technically marvel movies um maybe that's why straczynski did so well with it i you know because i mean he's written plenty for marvel uh even though i know he did that fantastic four thing and that hmm. uh, but <laughs> anyway he's still god um but yeah that, that was amazing to me so if you haven't checked out these movies in a while like you can certainly look at them in a new light and Man, if only there was somebody out there who just had the a little bit of writing chops to make the fan fiction, even if he had just had to change the names a little bit, to make the fan fiction of Underworld X Resident Evil X Blade. Boy, what a story that would be. Who, who out there has the moxie, has the chutzpah, as my people would say, to do that one? I wonder. Anyway... That's it for this Sovereign Tech. Go check out those movies. You're really in for a great time. Um, maybe not play the PS2 game, but you can you know, watch the game movie <laughs> on YouTube if you want. Uh, but we'll wrap up this Sovereign Tech with that, and I will see all of you whoo, on the other side. <laughs>